one night I was out at a bonfire and I decided to take some mushrooms and ask the mushrooms to show me and tell me what I'm hiding from myself that is causing my vagina to be numb. I'm Leanne. Welcome to Strippers and Sages, a podcast that explores sex and eroticism through the lenses of art, culture, politics, spirituality, and racial justice. Michaela Ivey holds a master's in both marriage and family therapy and art therapy, and recently completed a year-long coaching program with Layla Martin at the Tantric Institute of Integrated Sexuality as a love, sex, and relationship coach. She's a wordsmith, conscious comedian, and motivational speaker, using wordplay to reprogram consciousness on and off the stage. Her special linguistics and empower wording in magic nation inspires creative ways of influencing humanity into a universal love language. Michaela, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so psyched to have you here. Ah, it's such an honor. I'm so grateful. Yeah. So, uh, you just you just completed this program. How's it going? You're stepping into your your coaching. Stepping into it, you know, practice makes perfect. I like to say. <laughs> so, you know, we just do our blessed with what we know. You know, as long as you know a little bit more than someone else, you're a good guide and teacher. So, I've just been collecting as much information I can, integrating these practices for myself. And then sharing it and offering it with others. Yeah, it's been really wonderful. Mm. And I would love to hear, how did you begin to be a wordsmither? Where did that delightful linguistic trickery evolve from for you? I have uh, a partner named Brody, and he started sending texts and making up words. And I thought to myself, wow, you could do that? And I started to see how when you create a new word, you create a new concept. In a, in a sense, you create a new reality. And so I just took it to another level. I was like, I think Abundivine Humanifestiny was the first one I was channeling. That's abundance and divinity, humanifestation and destiny, the blessedny. Um, you know, and then, you know, speak a new language so the world will be a new world, Rumi. So I thought, how can I get leverage on duality and consciousness in a way that's clever and and creative and so word is magic and so this functionary um adding some more fun into our lexicon or blessicon just started happening so i've been yeah doing it for like over five years and it's been it's fun it makes people laugh i love it well it makes us laugh and like you say it's super inspiring it makes it makes us reflect too on also language that isn't serving us right I mean, just exactly. 10 minutes ago, Michaela and I were desperately troubleshooting or <laughs> trying to fix all of these technological difficulties. And we were both like, wait, troubleshooting. Why is that the word? Which I don't know. Has you, have you come up with another brilliant alternative yet? Uh, pleasure shooting. Pleasure shooting. Because really, we're all coming into more pleasure, right? I mean, that's what to me empowerment is, is to recognize that pleasure is our birthright, you know, and and it's safe to, to enjoy life to its fullest. So I would say instead of, you know, cause people like to write in pain points. And I just think that that's an old style of relating to people. Like, do you feel this pain and suffering? And I like to write in pleasure points. Like let's, 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 you know, be in that relationship where we get out of the pain and suffering from the past and into like what's working and a workable model. So yeah, more pleasure, more happiness. For everyone. So how did your, or how has your wordsmithing influenced your work around sexuality or even just your, how you think about sexuality? Have you, have you come up with any linguistic alchemy tools to improve or enhance uh, eroticism? Of course, you know, viva la vulva. <laughs> this is a revolution. I mean, we're working out the logistics for the vagenda, if you know what I'm saying. It's happiness and pleasure. You know what I mean? When we do it together like that, it's where it happens. And, you know, learning how to be a partner, you know, what is a partner? You used to say partner in crime, but I like to say partner in divine ready to go to the blistance. And a partner is someone who gives you the safety to be yourself and the courage to be vulnerable and open your heart. And that's one of the reasons I've created a new language so that we can create a new concept for what healthy looks like. 
So yeah, I got the logistics, you know, um, we've been really, it's really time to fuck give each other, you know, and start to fuck us. So yes, I, you know, no more, you know, hypocrites or apocrypussy, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's time to expand into our ultimate fuck potential is all I'm trying to say. And, uh, yeah, definitely have a whole sex vocabulary for this expansion, because if we're going to get into a new place, like if, if we're going to get into the now, wouldn't you agree that we need a now vocabulary to do that? I would agree. And wouldn't you agree that if we're going to embody more bliss, we would need a bliss discipline? Absolutely. So see, you wouldn't have even maybe thought about that on how to make that leap and jump, but the word allows that bridge. So it creates a new synaptic pathway in your mind to use your imagination. And if, if I could think of anything we, we need most right now is a healthy imagination to dream what's possible. Oftentimes we like to ask like, how is it going to happen? But I don't think that that is as blissessary is what am I going to do to make it happen? You know, like let's dream big with each other and um, create new traditions and new myths and new storylines uh, that are healthy for the new world. So these words allow for a healthy new co-authoring of, of your life. I love it. What are we calling it? The click, the clitionary? The clitionary. Well, I'm going to take the dick at a dictionary and make it a vagictionary. I'm going to be a vagillionaire. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, the, let the vagina speak. Let the, you know, the vulva speak. I mean, it's a revolution right now. And we're in the heart of the recalibration. And we're just recalibrating, like, what it looks like to love ourselves, to be authentic, to be available, to be considerate with one another, to truthisipate. I mean, I'm vulnerable. We're vulnerable. We need safety. We need trust in order to enter into a partnership with someone else, entering into it with us. And we may not have ever seen that before. Hmm. And that's why I say it's time to use our imagination because, you know, our mothers and our fathers and our ancestors, they, we may not have gotten past on this healthy conditioning. We didn't, you know, how many, when, when, when I ask people, um, what did your parents teach you about sex and what did you learn about sex from your mother or your father? You know what I hear? Nothing mm-hmm. or wear a condom or don't have sex when you're drunk. Um, I was very fortunate, however, to have a mother that gave me the freedom to enjoy my sexuality in a good way uh, from the beginning. So when I first asked my mother when I was a little kid, probably like four or five, I think, I said, what is sex? I don't know. I had a curiosity or a cure her erodicy. And she said, she drew a diagram like, Men have penises, women have vaginas, and then when they love each other, put them together, and it feels really good. This is how you have a baby, and so our and she said, and sexuality is healthy and normal. It's a birthright that we all have. But what she offered me was some really great advice on when to know when I was ready to have sex, which I think really set me apart from most of my peers at the time. Um, which was, you'll know when you're ready to have sex, when you can look someone in the eye and not feel uncomfortable, or you can be naked around that person and they have you feeling really safe. That's what your mother told you? Yes. Sam, mom, can she please teach some parenting workshops? That's awesome. I'm telling you, I told her we need to write a book. I mean, it was the best advice I could have been given. And so I really use that as a barometer. And when all my friends were having sex, some of them were in junior high. I mean, I was 18. I was graduating high school before I fell in love and felt safe enough to actually be with someone. And it was so beautiful because I felt safety. You know, we, we dated for like four months and it was like, we were both virgins and it was such a beautiful experience rather than, 
the pressure. I remember playing spin the bottle. Do you remember this game? And like, cause we're all mm-hmm. like really feeling that sexuality really young. And I think sexuality is normal, really young, but without any guidance, you know, what are we doing? And all my friends were really going for it. I was like super uncomfortable. I was not ready for that. I remember the boys just really wanted to play. And I was like, Hey, I don't really know you that well. And I was able to use my voice. I was really able to say, hey, I'm just not feeling safe enough to do that with you at an early age because my mom taught me that that was the most important thing to know if you wanted to have it with someone. And Mm -hmm. I I just don't think that most people got that guidance. So there wasn't any early foundation for, for that safety and that vulnerability and that sense of trust. Mm. How beautiful that. And so when you, what prior to you having sex, and to your mother giving you that piece of information that did you, did you self-pleasure when you were younger prior, you know, what was, was there conversation around masturbation or what, what were the ways in which you were exploring your eroticism prior to losing your virginity, which I'd also love to hear your um, reframing of language around that phrase. Cause it's so problematic. Absolutely. So um, I believe it was Whew, what great. I think it might've been elementary school, like maybe fifth or sixth grade. My mom bought my brother and I a book on masturbation. So she normalized it and she would talk to us about it. And I remember my brother coming up to my mom one day and was like, put his arm around my mom and said, thank you so much for, um, for this book and to knowing that this is okay. Um, so I just feel like my mom, you know, because she didn't get that from her mother at all. She was really shocked around sexuality. And she said when she first saw an erection, it scared the heck out of her. She just had no preparation or or anything around her sexuality. And it was scary for her. So she just decided that she was just going to give us the tools and give us, you know, just to know that, you know, she would say, uh, well, so one of her lines was, um, you got to try on lots of pairs of shoes before you know which one really fits uh, around, make sure you have lots of sexual experiences with everybody. There's nothing wrong with that. You want to be safe, but you want to enjoy and enjoy yourself. So I just always had this, you know, capacity to, well, I didn't always have the capacity to be able to enjoy myself in intimacy. I think that that I learned that uh, along the way, obviously still learning that, um, but she gave me a healthy foundation. So say, say more about that, because I think that what you just said is huge for, for all of us. Like, how do you actually get to the place of enjoying intimacy? So what, what, what do you feel, what are your thoughts on what that journey is for people in general? And what was your journey around getting to that place or is your journey continuing to be? Well, I like to say that trust is the best sexual position. (laughs) And, you know, people used to ask me what my kink was and I was like, you know, a healthy, committed partnership, you know? Um, so for me, trust and, uh, honesty, uh, create safety. So I feel like my journey into creating, uh, healthy intimacy has to do with creating trust and vulnerability with another person and being able to communicate needs and desires and longings in a healthy way, um, to express, Um, what works and what doesn't work, or at least know that I have the resource to be able to get to what I'm longing for and the safety to get there. So, uh, yeah, just dropping into an ability to communicate those desires. I think communication is one of the biggest, that's the biggest glue, the connection piece that that creates healthy intimacy is healthy communication, um, being able to know what your feelings are. Cause I think, you know, emotions are still tuning into that and knowing how to express your full range of emotions and not needing validation from another or not feeling like you're going to get rejected. So a sense of, of, of trusting yourself and loving yourself and yeah. And then being able to ask for what, you long for what are your desires what are you needing like and I think it's really having good discernment or good discernment on who you choose to be intimate with being able to trust the other person is going to be honest and have integrity you know a secure attachment style someone who's you know able to show up in a good way 
and create safety for you, like for you to be able to ask them for what your, your desire and they meet you in that space. Yes. I want to meet you with your desires because sometimes people are not able to meet you in your desires. Totally. And, and that's okay. But I think, you know, is this healthy? I like to, I like to ask people, are you healthy? Are you healthy for me? Like, can you show up in a good way? So Mm. yeah. Mm. I have follow-ups for that. And And I, and I think, and I think that's what it has to do with awareness, awareness of self, and just awareness. I think a lot, we, we lack a lot of a personal awareness of ourselves. And I don't think it's at fault of anyone else. I think it's just our consciousness is where it's at. You know, there's just so much to tune into and think about that. It's sometimes it's hard to become aware of other. Mm-hmm. When you're aware of yourself, then you become, you can become aware of another. And I think that that creates healthy connection. I think it really requires you to do work on yourself and be humble and be able to look at your shadows and to see them and to acknowledge them and to continue to, yeah, shine light on each other in a way that uh, feels safe. Uh, you know, I think that's why we come into relationship with each other. We all, we all come in with this sheath or our guarding around our hearts and this flame inside that wants to be exposed. And I think in, in healthy friendships and healthy partnerships, um, are, are those who can shine a light on our shadow and we feel safe enough to go, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then bring that guarding and defensiveness down in order for more light to shine, to mm-hmm. more safety, more autonomy, to be able to be ourselves, you know, to be expressed, to share the full range of emotions in a good way to not feel like you have to hold back and fear you're going to hurt someone else's feelings. So you want to make sure that other people have emotional um, maturity as well. Mm -hmm. What would you say since you, your personal upbringing, at least in, in this regard was so supportive, um, where do you think that, you know, what are, what are the forces that are um, counterproductive to what you're saying that you have had to unlearn and that you see other people just in society having to unlearn to get to that place of authenticity and vulnerability and expression? Well, I think we've been really born in a field of conditional love. Most people haven't really received unconditional love before. And I think there's like a general uh, unworthiness uh, that happens. It's a very pervasive, uh, experience to feel like you're not really worthy of love or you're not really lovable or the inadequacy around not being good enough. And that fear that you're not doing it right, or you're not playing at your fullest. So I think it's like unlearning some of these shadow frequencies that, um, that, you know, we got carried on, you know, past lineages, we all came through our mother's womb, right? And we've all, cons- you know, been wounded in some level because it's taken a really long time for humanity to really honor the feminine in a good way and see the feminine as equal. And, you know, even in the, you know, the feminine movement, you know, there's like an uprising and sometimes, ain't, you know, a lot of bitterness and anger around like, I haven't gotten my rights, but I think it's like this, um, balancing knowing that that masculine and feminine are different and learning to honor that balance and I think I had to unlearn um and still unlearning I don't think I'm an expert on anything I just want to know I'm a complete student of this life and learning every day how to be more authentic and more available and to trust myself you know I, I I've come to realize that um there are deep insecurities that we all have. Like, is my body beautiful? I remember, you know, growing up and I didn't have that body that I saw in the magazines and what media portrays as beautiful and sexy. And that was really challenging because it's like, do I look like what sexy and beautiful looks like? And the pressure to be sexy and beautiful as a woman in our culture is so huge. So redefining what sexy and beautiful is, it it has been part of the process. Like beauty comes from within. It comes from the heart. It isn't about this physical outward appearance. It's about caring for yourself and caring for another. And like, I really, I've had this word beauty 
It's where beauty meets humility as your sacred duty, right? Because I think sometimes beauty is a blessing and a curse, meaning that you could be so beautiful and everyone can desire you and want you. And you use that beauty as a tool for power, you know, a tool to get something from someone. Or you can use your beauty as a tool for expansion. And to me, that's beautyility where you use it for expansion. You're not using it to get power and control over someone else. So I think that learning to accept my flaws, accept my cellulite, accept my boobs are not the firmest breasts. And just, and this has been a big one because I'm just turning 47 on Saturday, but I just feel, and especially in my partnership right now, that he loves me for me. Like I don't have to look like something. And I think in the past, I've always like been insecure with partners. Like, am I hot? Am I sexy? Am I? And I think there's just been a recent, like really stepping into actually my body is beautiful as it is. This is my body. Like if you're, if you are rejecting yourself, you're rejecting life. How can you get into pleasure if you're totally being so hypercritical of the way you look? How can you expand into a, eroticism when you're so focused on what this other person might be thinking of you. So I think more intimacy and pleasure comes from having a healthy self-esteem about what you look like or, you know, about who you are. Totally. How, what are some of the tools that you offer your clients and that you've used for yourself to sort of foster that more, um, a deeper sense of erotic embodiment fueled by a sort of self self embodiment and self-esteem. Yeah. I mean, I think the most important thing is learning uh, NVC, nonviolent communication and connective tools. I think, um, you know, helping people to share what their fears are. Like, what are your deepest fears in your partnership with another? Cause maybe your partner doesn't ask you, um, what are you fear the most, you know, and being able to communicate those things. What do you desire the most? What do you pleasure the most? And, and really expressing, well, what do you love the most about me? Um, and really holding each other and being able to ask for what you need to be able to give and receive. I think learning how to give and receive tools where you teach someone to ask and the other partner, unless it's like really hurts them to do it, but just to say yes to those things. So to be really... Yeah, be given freedom, like freedom to really share what turns you on and feel like the person really wants to show up for that and create healthy couple bubbles um, in intimate connections with people. So really learning each other's value systems. And um, I love the book Wired for Love by Stan Tatskin. And I've, I've learned so much about uh, how to create healthy couple bubbles uh, for myself and for, for others. And really what what I've learned so much about this and what makes so much sense is that, you know, when in if you're in a relationship and all you want is autonomy and you want your personal freedoms and you're showing up for your own needs, you're like, if I'm not getting my needs met by my partner, I'm just going to have to get my needs met by someone else. Does that really work? Like, is that a working model? And I don't think so. I think it's really important to find out what your partner's personal needs are and their longings and their value systems and show up for that because you're showing up for the relationship. You're saying this relationship is more important than my personal needs. And I'm willing to do this thing for you, not because it's what I want, but it's because I know it's something that you want and that it's important to you. So creating exercises and connection tools to allow that level of Clarity, understanding, safety, rapport, and curiosity. I think curiosity is so important. Are, are you working mostly with people, with couples and pe- people in partnership right now, or do you work with individuals as well? I am bringing on more couples. I've been more working with individuals at this point, mm-hmm. but I want to work more with couples because I love uh, dynamic interplay between people. And I love finding a way to br- make that bridge so that they right. can communicate in healthier ways. Well, I'd love to to rewind a little bit and go back to 
I guess we we got up to your own personal journey as an adolescent. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your own journey around pleasure and exploration into your own body when you were a young woman and how it's evolved. You just said happy birthday, by the way, that you're about to turn 47. So I think it's really fascinating to consider um, a woman's journey over or anyone's sexual journey over a lifetime because it's something, again, in terms of how we talk about it, we're not, I think there's a lack of discourse around this is something that is always an evolution, right? Like, of course, a woman in her 50s, well, I'm not going to say of course, because I think our culture is really fucked up and a lot of people um, do not have the tools and are not focusing on this area of their life in a way that can make it something that is continuously evolving and expanding. But if we can reframe and think about it as a personal journey in the way that we think about all the other areas of our lives, coming of age, I hope that to be a hundred times wiser when I'm 60 than I am now in my thirties. And similarly, I hope to have grown and expanded as an erotic being over the next 30 years. So, um, all of that to say, I'd love to hear about your own personal journey, uh, over the last few decades. Thank you. And you will. (laughs) Yes. Um, well, it definitely hasn't always been rainbows and kittens. I'll tell you that much. Like I had a huge period of my life where I was extremely traumatized. Um, while I was getting my master's degree as a marriage and family therapist, I was with my my husband, uh, for, we were together for seven years. So I met him when I turned 21 and, you know, I didn't have that many sexual partners before him and we were together for seven years. And then he left me in between my first and second year of my master's degree program. And in a very traumatic way, um, he just out of the blue told me he met someone that he wants a divorce. And then I kind of never heard from him again. So I was completely beside myself to say the least. Uh, I was going through a really hard time at that time. And um, in that moment, I decided to go, I had a date. It was one of my first dates um, and I was really excited about it. And a friend of mine, uh, she was asking about it on my way out the door. I didn't know this guy. I met him uh, at a club and he's like, I'd love to see you. He looked really healthy. I was like, sure, I would love to. I felt a like a connection with him. And I was on my way out the door and my friend said, you know, maybe you don't want to drive to his house because maybe he will rape you. And I was like, no way. Like, I'm not going to get raped. Like, that's not, I didn't even think it was possible. Anyway, to uh, jump to the end of the date, uh, we had a really nice time. And then I, we were in his hot tub and he gave me a drink and I got really tired and exhausted. And I was like, Hey, I think I need to get out of here. And, uh, he said, do you want me to give you a massage? And I said, sure. I was still trusting this guy. He was like a realtor. He had a gorgeous home. He looked really never trust a realtor. Never. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this guy's got it going on. You know, I could trust him. So he massages me and, uh, I leave my body. But I leave my body and I am actually having a witness of what's going on. Uh, So I'm able to observe what's happening. And he raped me. Um, And so I woke up in the middle of the night after being really groggy from whatever he gave me. And I rolled over and I was like, oh my goodness, I just got raped. Um... He was what we call a gentleman rapist. He didn't try to really hurt me, um, but he did have sex with me without my permission. And I, you know, I left there. I was like, okay, I'm leaving now. And he said, okay. I just, I was really in shock. And I left there and I got into my car. And you didn't talk about it. There was no. No. Yeah. He was in his bed with his covers on top of his head. He had left me in his other room, in his massage room. I just said, I'm, I, I snuck around his house. I looked at everything. Like, who is this guy? Like, oh my God. Like, he looked like such a nice person from all his beautiful art to photos of, you know, maybe his niece and nephew are on his refrigerator. And I said, I'm leaving. And he said, okay. And I got in my car and I said to myself, you're not allowed to think about this for two seconds and or tell a single soul. That's what I wow. said to myself. Wow. So I actually hypnotize myself because I was completely barely unable to cope at all finishing up being a therapist and all that. And like, I just was like, 
really lost it at that point. So I'm going to skip ahead, fast forward. Um, a couple of years had passed and I was experiencing what we would call a numb vagina. And I didn't know why. I was scaring men around, scaring men. Men are like, you're really scary. I'm like, I'm scary. I didn't, I didn't, I guess I had this hostility, but I didn't know about it because I seriously hypnotized myself. I put this memory in foreign affairs file in my mind. Okay. Foreign affairs. Can't handle it right now. Not going to think about it. Not going to attend to it. So I noticed that I couldn't feel sex. Yeah. You know, my yoni got wet, it got juicy, but I couldn't feel a thing. So I decided to go on a, a celibacy. I'm going to a year long journey into like really discovering why I can't feel anything. And one night I was out at a bonfire and I decided to take some mushrooms and ask the mushrooms to show me and tell me what I'm hiding from myself that is causing my vagina to be numb. So it was a powerful night. It was raining. I had my feet in the mud. I was really connected to the earth and the fire. And I kept saying, show me, show me, show me, show me. That was like the intention with the medicine. I was ready to see. And it was about five in the morning. I was sitting around some sounding bowls and a light bulb, it's called a light bulb memory, came in a flash. And I saw the night that I went out. I, I, I saw myself getting ready for that date. I saw what my friend said as I walked out the door. I saw everything that happened. And I instantly got so sick. I had to puke almost like right away. It was like this memory came back that I had like stored deep down. Like this was not accessible. And it came up. And um, I went into my mind's eye at the time. And I went back to the scene of the crime. I was like, oh, no, no, no. This guy does not get to have power over me like this anymore. I am so done giving my power away to this guy. So in my mind's eye, after I remember I woke up and I just said, I'm leaving. But in in the vision of my mind, I went to him at that bed. I pulled the covers off his head and I said, this was not okay. It is not okay to enter a woman and to enter me without my permission. You raped me. You're disgusting. But you know what? You don't get to control me like this anymore. I get to have my pleasure back. So I like kind of cut and and sent him on his way, sent him to like, you know, pleasure school and respect school. And like, and I started to reclaim myself again. So I remember too, like I started cursing uncontrollably, like all of a sudden this anger and this hidden rage started coming out. I was like, what, why am I swearing so much? So like all of this suppression started coming to the surface. And I was really grateful, like, okay, this is what was causing that numb vagina because for a woman, and probably for a man too, I think for humans, I think we're connected. Our hearts and our vaginas and our penises, we're all connected. It's a mind-body-spirit connection. And thank goodness I met a man at this time who was willing to take his time with me. He was like, he could tell that I was numb. He said, you're numb, aren't you? And I said, I am. And he said, I want to help you. I want to help heal you. And so we worked on this process of he would, um, he wasn't entering me. He's like, I'm not going to actually put my penis inside of you because I think really you just need some finger strokes and some softness and some gentleness. And what I'm going to do with you is I'm going to ask you what you're feeling while I'm doing these strokes. And at first it really traumatized me. I was like, Oh my God, I don't know. I don't feel anything. Like it was just so hard to not be able to ask accent, um, access, access, access. (laughs) (laughs) the felt sense and just to be able to feel. But the more and more he asked me and the more and more I knew that he was there from my pleasure and not his pleasure and that he truly was holding such a safe space for me, I began to feel again. And not only did I begin to feel, but I started accessing my G-spot. And I'm like, I think I'm like, 
what's happening to me? I think I'm going to like pee or something. And he's like, yes, let it go. Let it flow. <laughs> like that's the Amrita. I'm like, what are you talking about? I didn't even know. But through that safety, through that trust, through that asking, what does this feel like now? What are you feeling in this moment? I was able to access my pleasure again. And what I've noticed as I've grown up and had different sexual partners is my, my, my flower, my, my pleasure is so connected to my ability to feel safe with that person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and where I am with uh, uh, being able to be in my body. I think sometimes if I'm anxious, and it could be even with my partner now. Sometimes I am. I'm just having a thing where I'm like really in my head. Mm-hmm. or And it's really hard for me to access full pleasure when I'm in my head. So I have to get into my breath and into my body and know it's safe. So like calling in safety, just with the breath, safe. It's just soften, soften, soften. So yeah, just accessing the heart and love. And yeah, Mm -hmm. I just noticed how much I'm connected. It's just all connected. Mm -hmm. And I just give myself permission not to feel sometimes I'm like, Oh, wow, I'm just really not accessing my pleasure right now. And I let myself know that that's okay. Like it doesn't always have to be the most ecstatic experience to have an amazing experience in intimacy and love and sexuality. It doesn't have to always be that mind blowing orgasm. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a partner that can look me in the eyes and love me where I'm at. And because I don't have a goal anymore. It's not about like getting off. It's about getting in. Um, it's a, just a different journey. Wow. Michaela, thank you so much for sharing that remarkable story. I think it's really an important one for people to hear. In a previous episode on the show with Catherine Rowland, we were talking about just what is trauma and how there's acute trauma, we could say, which is what you underwent. And then there's atmospheric trauma, which is in some ways just what it is to be a woman alive in a rape culture, what it is to be catcalled, what it is to, from a young age, even be living in a culture where your friend needs to rightfully say to you, you probably shouldn't drive to his house because, right? Versus how about we live in a culture where some guy doesn't feel like he needs to date. I mean, what's also remarkable about that is like, it was going well. You were like into this guy. You probably would have slept with him voluntarily, like soon enough. (laughs) Yeah. And so, um, the reason I'm bringing up atmospheric trauma is if we, if we think about that, there are, there's the way in which there's this atmospheric trauma affecting all of us potentially, then we all have this work to do in our bodies. We all have this, these constrictions to overcome and that they can come up. And we sometimes don't even, especially when there's not an acute cause or in your case, when, when the mind blots it out in that way, which is just so astounding that you were able to do that. And that you could look back and remember that moment too, of getting in your car and saying, nope, not for two seconds. And I know you because I know like your mind and the power of your you know, positive thinking and just like choosing what to focus on and in, that you were able to do that in that way for better or worse. Um, and it seems like, you know, you, you were, you came back to process it when you were ready to. Um, but so this idea of how important it is and why you were focusing so much on trust in the beginning of this conversation to be given that space when you're with a partner to be given that, um, that space for healing and for exploration and to take away the goal of it. And, you know, everything that you're talking about feels like so much, so little of that is what's ever televised, what's ever talked about. It's never in the movies, right? Like all of the messaging we get about sex when we then are actually in the, that moment and feeling this constriction or this tension or this numbness, or this trauma in our bodies, and especially maybe are not able to pinpoint it. And then that conflicts with this messaging we get of how we should just be these multi-orgasmic people who like, like in Hollywood, it's just takes two seconds and you're, you meet, you know, the first time, the new love of your life, et cetera. I think it can lead to a feeling of brokenness and inferiority of like, well, why isn't my body responding in a certain way as I'm seeing that it should? And so I think normalizing these stories and these conversations and um, as your mother did in raising you of, well, step one, can you hold eye contact? 
can you hold conversation? Can you express yourself clearly um, is really foundational to the kind of paradigm shift that I think um, we're needing on a global scale when it comes to sex. Yeah. I think safety is the foundational piece around our sexuality and feeling pleasure. And growing up as a young girl, was it safe to be erotic? No. We all, I feel like it was a place we had to guard ourselves. Like it wasn't safe, you know, and I don't know even still if it's safe for a lot of women, you know, we have a culture that, um, doesn't, uh, maybe ask permission for instance. And I'll, and I'll give you an example. I was 31 years old and feel like I had plenty of sexual experiences after my divorce and everything. And I was with a man who, um, he asked me permission before he entered me. We were having a beautiful sexual exchange. And he said, would it be okay to enter your now, to enter your temple? And I, mic drop, okay? <laughs> Jaw was on the floor that I hadn't been asked permission to have someone enter me in all of my experiences ever. No one actually really ever checked in with me around that. And I, and at the same time, I was like, And I totally forgot that I was supposed to remind them, hey, not before you enter. I mean, hello, just because a woman is turned on and excited does not mean that she is ready for you to enter her womb space and get in, you know, and that was a huge wake up call to me, like to create safety inside of myself, to be able to even ask for that. So there's all this pressure to be sexual. And I also remember too, and with my mother growing up, I started dressing really kind of slutty, really short skirts and lots of makeup. And my mom was, because that's where all my friends were dressing like that. And one day she goes, not in judgment, just she asked a question. She said, Nikayla, what are you attracting with that look? Are you, are you are looking to have sex with someone? Are you ready for that? And I was like, absolutely not. I am so not ready for that. She goes, well, you might want to consider what image you're putting off because, you know, that's what you're calling in. And I think it just is unconscious. We unconsciously want to be overly sexualized because as a woman, that's what determines our worth. And, you know, we're in a state, we're in a, in a place where like pedophilia is like on the rise and that movie cuties and everything's over-sexualizing young kids. And it's like, what are we doing? What are we saying by all the twerking and, you know, have you seen the WAP, the Cardi B? But, you know, I kind of love the WAP and I haven't seen Cuties yet. It's a, a professional imperative that I do, I think, soon. Um, but I guess just to to play into, to dig into it a little bit deeper, there's also, I think what you're saying about that our, we're, women are objectified, our self-worth then becomes how much can we play ourselves up as a sex object. That's one piece of it. And then perhaps there's also a very authentic desire to feel one's own eroticism and sexuality and sexual power, right? And so again, in a radical, magic nation, (laughs) imagining, I'm going to, I'm picking up your lexicon, you know, if we can have a radical reimagining of, well, what would a safe world look like in which young women are able to safely dress or self-express and to know that that is not an invitation, that, you know, that that one thing doesn't isn't equated with the other or that there can be, again, I, I don't really want to talk about cuties cause I've haven't seen it, but, um, even, even as, as you're speaking about your childhood, there's like an acknowledgement of, I think how your mother treated you and your brother of like, yes, you are, you are sexual beings, you are alive and you are young and you are sexual beings already. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that shouldn't be shamed. So on the one hand, it's like, what's going on with the hypersexualization of society in a way that is maybe harmful and driven by impure motives um, and playing into certain stereotypes or demands that are unhealthy. And then there's also the question of, isn't there, what is a pure expression of that look like for women and for men and for, for children as well? You know, I have a little niece and, um, if you've, when you spend time with like a two-year-old and they're like discovering their genitals, it's like, that can really freak out adults. And it's like, well, why, why are we freaked out by that? That's like the purest, that's a discovery of a body that's normal. And so at the same time, I think 
the fear of pedophilia, the fear of like, oh, we got to protect the purity of our women um, also has some really harmful consequences that can lead to a mixed messaging that's like undercutting or, or doing a disservice, I think, to what we all, what you and I are talking about in terms of erotic liberation. Yeah, I think we got to let go of the shame and claim our birthrights to enjoy sexuality. And I think that some of these perverted ways of relating to ourselves sexually has to do with a lot of shame Mm -hmm. Uh, because we weren't taught that this was a human birthright to enjoy erotic, you know, connection with each other, that it's okay to touch yourself. Babies masturbate, period. They touch their genitals. This we come out as sexual beings and we just haven't been educated. Like it hasn't been actually okay. Like sex as sin, but no sex as liberation. Like, and I think that we do, we get so many mixed messages and it's hard to know, is it liberating us or is it like hurting us? You Mm -hmm. know, like a, a penis can be a liberator or a destroyer. Sex can be, you know, the most powerful healing that we could possibly have or the most destructive. So how are you using your sexuality, you know? And I don't think there's any, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with porn or anything wrong with someone being a slut, calling themselves a slut. It's just, are you really honoring? Are you being really authentic and honoring yourself? Or are you doing it at a, wanting to get validated by someone else? So I think if it's like an external validation or like you're doing it to, uh, yeah, where it's not really honoring the other person's needs and like really asking consent. I think consent culture and asking for consent and going slow is so big, like really checking in and not assuming. I think we make a lot of assumptions that if a, per- if a, if a person is twerking that they want a lot of uh, sexual attention and maybe they don't, maybe they're just like, I'm just trying to- It fucking feels good. It feels good. I'm just wiggling my ass. And I, you know, like I, I have mixed feelings. It's interesting. I have such mixed feelings on, you know, that Cardi B video, you mm-hmm. know, I'm like on some, once one part of me, the wild side, right? Cause I have a wild side, I have a conservative side and my wild side is like, yeah, get it girl. Like, you know, it's like empowered, just enjoying sex for the, for sex sake and like not trying to like give a fuck what anybody else thinks. And then there's another part of me that's like, this is on YouTube and this, this is young kids can get access to this. And what is the message we're sharing around that? So yeah, it's an interesting dichotomy trying to figure out where it all lands and trying to mm-hmm. understand it all. And I think it's wonderful that we're even talking about it because I think we're really uncovering it together. Like what is healthy sexuality? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, 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 confidence, embodying, embodying what's true and, and being an exploration and curiosity just exploring the edges with someone safe. I think, I think that's what it's all about. Just surrounding yourself with people who are safe, that you feel safe around is the most important thing for your erotic health. When you feel safe with someone, you're like, let's go for some fantasies. Let's try new things. Cause you're like, you can just let go. But oftentimes people get with people that they don't feel safe with, you know, or haven't felt safe with. And therefore they have to do this healing journey to recover their lost self from, from trauma, from rape, from, you know, just this lack of consent that's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we just have forgotten something. I think it's an ancient knowledge. I think we we're all born with it, but because the conditioning field has had so much judgment around sexuality and we weren't really given much knowledge or information in a healthy way, we've, we're all just kind of deconditioning right now from unhealthy ways. Mm-hmm. And we're just starting to like, like a seed come out of like planting healthy soil so that we can grow into fully embodied erotic beings uh, without shame or guilt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would love, do you want to talk a little bit about the type of work that you are doing or interested in doing or how you are addressing some of this and this very personal realm with the people that you work with? Yeah. Um, I don't just focus solely on sexuality. I think I, I, I focus a lot on empowerment and creating more love and intimacy and safety inside oneself so that you can opt in to love and partnership in a good way. So working with people on their, their desires, I, I like to understand well, what, what people are working on and what, what embodiment or empowerment that they're working on with themselves. And I think that once you learn to love yourself and accept yourself and let go of these insecurities 
then you can step into a more embodied way of being in relationship to others. So working with attachment styles and creating a new, like reauthoring with people who they want to be, not from the past, but from like the present and into the future. So I work in a somatic way. So I go into into the body to find out what's there because we all have, you know, many different aspects of ourselves. Um, you know, oftentimes I find the inner child piece is hanging out around uh, the one trying to control love and relationships and intimacy. And that's not the highest archetype to work on being in an empowered relationship with another. So really healing the inner child piece and the mother piece and the father piece. So it's really just going into the past and transforming it, uh, finding a way to have clarity, acceptance, if you can, gratitude, creating new narratives and new storylines that do work, finding out like what you picked up from your past or from your mother or your father that's not really serving and nourishing experience for you anymore. So just really uncovering patterns and thought patterns and experiences from the past that really just need a new lens to look through. So I help people with that. Just inspiring people, like inspiring people to go for it, inspiring people to bring their bigness instead of the smallness to their experiences. So I hold a space of love and and trust and non-judgments for people to explore for themselves, you know, to just ask great questions, to allow people to uncover their truth. Mm -hmm. Super powerful and necessary work. And I can have no doubt that you are indeed an excellent steward of that expansion for people. I would love to know, as we are playing in the realm of a magic nation, what do you think if you could just completely reimagine society in terms of our sexual norms, um, our sexual education for young people, you know, what, what would the sex utopia look like (laughs) in Michaela's world? Mm. Well, I think it really requires education. I think it would be really important to, um, help educate parents on how to teach their children about sex, really re-educating the parents and then starting there, um, how to talk to your kids about sex. Like when is a good time to start talking about sex? Cause I think you should start talking about my mom, the way my mom did it. She's like, the moment you brought it up, that was the beginning. So I think I was like four or five. I was really young. So I think parents are just really insecure about addressing it because no one addressed it with them. Education, education, education. I think that that's the most important way that we're going to get into a, a, a healthy society around sexuality um, is start with educating parents, educating teens, you know, having like creating, getting rid of the shame around anything being wrong with sex, you know, allowing, you know, teaching young girls to say no when it doesn't feel good. Like, when do you say no? When do you say yes? And in in this utopic society, I see respect. Mm -hmm. And young boys, of course. Young girls and young boys. Of course, yes. In all genders, you know, Um, to to have a voice, to uh, know how to say yes, how to know you're in, to trust your instincts, like how to teach people how to trust their instincts and know when it's a yes you know, to get to tuned in, like, Ooh, I, I actually do feel excited and turned on around this and, and that this is okay. So yeah, normalcy and Mm -hmm. creating probably healthier porn, maybe, and maybe, um, sexual porn for, for, for teenagers, like healthy pornography, teaching boys to go slow with the girls. And, you know, if the girl wants that, maybe the, maybe the, maybe the girl's really, um, assertive and that's her, her kink and that's okay too. But I think it's just that everyone is happy and feels really happy mm-hmm. with the way that they're relating to their sexuality, like mm-hmm. getting rid of just this, like, Oh, I'm not good enough or I'm not getting what I want or just like. Totally. And queer porn for teenagers, all everything that normalizes the whole spectrum, of course. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that's super problematic as you're saying in terms of, yes, it needs to start with parents and that then 
I think parents fear stigma from other parents, right? So I can see, well, yeah, I want to talk to my daughter, but then I don't want her going off to her kindergarten and saying things that freak out other parents that then start thinking, people just get so alarmed that, oh, then they think that I'm, there's something inappropriate happening at home when in fact, you're just trying to educate your child. You know, I've certainly thought about how (laughs) I feel the best contribution I could make to society would be to start a sort of a wilderness program to take young women, like 12 and 13 year olds, which is already late, honestly, but you know, around that age. um, I mean, I think it's late to start the conversation, but it's probably the right age to then bring them into the woods and like, let's talk about pleasure. Let's talk about like learning your own body right now. Let's um, with a real focus on sexuality and sexual empowerment and just how would that program get enrollment? Like we're in the Bay Area. It's the most progressive among the most progressive cities in the United States. And even within that, I just think that parents get so freaked out and uptight and worried about how that could go wrong or what that could say or, you know, um, and that that's really, really problematic. And um, part of, I think, the shift that needs to happen is like, how do we, we, we talk about getting rid of the stigma. And I think a lot of people are generally on board with that. Like, yes, sex positive, sure. But then when it comes to actually taking those steps to reframe there, there can be a lot of resistance even with fairly within fairly progressive communities. And so, yeah, I think a lot of parents are really hung up and really scared (laughs) themselves because they don't even know what healthy sexuality is. So they have to be able to trust that you're going to be able to discuss healthy sexuality. I mean, what is healthy sexuality? But I think the Europeans do a great job. I mean, I think we should look to cultures that they have a working model and learn from working models. Maybe. I need to look into, I got to find out about what's going on over there. Yeah. You know, I mean, I remember um, in high school, uh, talking to some exchange students from Europe and they were like, Oh, we've been talking about sex since I was little. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I definitely can have someone come over in high school and have sex and it's nothing wrong with that. So, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that the conversation then encompassed all of the nuance that we're talking about now. I would imagine also from my own experience with European lovers who did not ask consent, <laughs> right. That there's, you know, this, this level of, um, education and reframing of health could probably, I don't know anywhere on the planet that's doing it well, but I hope that there is somewhere and I would love to, I would love to learn, right? If you're listening, let me know. Tamara Institute, maybe. Um, I want to also ask you, since we were talking about psychedelics earlier and how powerful your own experience with mushrooms was in, in helping you towards your own healing, what do you see is the potential of using psychedelics, um, for sexual healing? Wow. I think it's an amazing tool for sexual healing. I mean, you can go into an alternative universe and be able to like meta experience yourself in this witness mode and in a safe container. I think that that is extremely powerful to be able to observe yourself from a higher self, because that's what I think psychedelics does. It gives us a a meta perspective on on ourselves. And in a healthy environment that feels safe and expansive, absolutely deeply healing and transformational. I mean, I think psychedelics are highly valuable and under-respected for this. Um, So I definitely think psychedelics and a sexual experience is profound and can have a profound experience for healing to really call back those soul fragments of yourself that got broken, got, got split off during, um, painful moments. You know, I think we do get fragmented like what happened with me during my rape. Um, I fragmented and I lost part of my spirit and like, and then, and then my whole adult life has been like calling back those soul fragments. And I feel like psychedelics and ayahuasca and mushrooms, they really helps to call those soul fragments back to yourself. So you're pretty much calling back your wholeness. You've already been whole, but then you got, you know, fractalized, um, and you're not completely with yourself all the way. And so just really coming back home, you know, I think coming back home into the heart and, uh, yeah. Letting go of the trauma. How do we let go of the trauma? How do we let go of being angry and resentful for being 
dishonored or disrespected in a sexual realm. Like how do we forgive each other, truly forgive each other? Especially when we tend that forgiving needs to go towards ourselves often. There's often so much self-blame for those types of incidents. Absolutely. Like I created that. I caused that, you know, and, and it was interesting because when I was uh, being raped and I was out of body, I, I loved myself so much. And I told myself in that witness mode, you don't deserve this, Michaela. You are not, you don't deserve what's happening to you right now. This guy is obviously deeply insecure and um, yeah. And I think he was deeply insecure and that's why he did it uh, because he was deeply insecure about his own sexuality. I mean, he was like two minutes, you know, it wasn't like a long sexual experience. It was like, he slapped a condom on, thank God. That's why I called him the gentleman rapist and then had sex with me for like a minute or two. And I think his own insecurity about not being able to be a good lover created his need to want to uh, drug me and take me without my permission. So I think, yeah, just like learning how to cultivate being a good lover. What does it mean to be a good lover, to show up for people's happiness, to show up for another person's pleasure, to be enjoying our pleasure, but getting off on another person's pleasure to get out of our own way to be able to show up for another. That's like healthy for me. Like, Mm -hmm. wow. What do you, you know? So yeah, healthy sexuality. Just, yeah. I'm getting for it all the time. Totally. And getting to the root of it, like you're saying, I think um, taking a a transformative justice view towards uh, rapists as well, as you're saying, like, well, what was what what messaging did he get as a kid and as a teenager to lead him to this? What earlier traumatic experiences does he have, which does not excuse the action by any means. But if we can start looking at how to transform the culture at that root and, you know, in all of the ways that we've been talking about in this conversation, you know, that can help to curtail the types of assault that are so tragically prevalent right now. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's like a deep insecurity. Yeah. And um, when sexuality is run from a deep insecurity, you can accidentally uh, cross the line and people do cross the line. Um, And yeah. So yeah. Mm -hmm. For the last, my last question, since we heard about this awful trauma, I would love to then hear if there is uh, what one of your most ecstatic or fondest or special or wildest or insert whatever adjective you would like to share about uh, a positive sexual experience that you had. Mm. Well... Let me, let me tune in for this for a second. Yeah. What positive sexuals? Well, I'm just going to use my lover right now. Like, um, he is just so attentive and loving me the way that he continues to keep his eye contact and look at me and just say, I love you. Like, I can orgasm so quickly with him. And I asked him, I said, what? Like, how are you so good at this? And he's like, well, well, I'm using my tongue to be like, I love you. <laughs> so it's energy. I think the most ecstatic times that I experience is when the person's really available, attentive, like not, they're not in their head, they're in their heart and they're actually present. So I feel like when presence is there, I'm able to relax. And when I'm relaxed and present, I'm able to go into, it's almost like another realm where I feel safety. When I feel safety, I can, it's like I channel in tongues. I completely almost leave earth, but in a good way. It's like, I'm just in another realm and just feeling that like, yeah, my most ecstatic experiences was when I feel safe and seen mm-hmm. and respected. And I know that my part, the person I'm with is with me. I can use my name. Michaela, you're so beautiful. Michaela, you're so sexy. Michaela, I love you. When when I my name is being said, it helps to call me back into my body and to know that person isn't in a fantasy thinking about something else, but they're actually with me. And I think that creates the most intimate way to be together is when you know the person is actually present and not fantasizing. And I can feel that. And I think women can feel that. And I think that's where sometimes the numbness comes because we can know that that person is, yeah, there might be inside of us, but they're not really with us. 
you know, and uh, I'm not shaming fantasy. I'm just saying that at least be fantasizing together. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's a whole, um, it speaks to also the tools that in terms of intimacy, like intimacy is its own, that needs to be on the sex ed curriculum as well, right? To be able to be present, mindfulness, presence, somatic, um, yeah, somatic presence. Those are all tools that are so relevant and that we talk about outside of the realm of eroticism, but fuel it, they're they're so connected. I know when I did a Vipassana course, by day five, I'm just like, oh my God, this is like, this is all going to unlock all of my eroticism. Cause you're just the whole, you're just body scanning for freaking 10 hours a day and like focusing on presence, focusing on presence and awareness, presence on awareness, presence and awareness. And I think that, um, that's, that's a pretty essential, essential tool for, for sex and for, for pleasure, for being able to access all of that. And I'm so glad that you just shared that because I think it's really beautiful and important for, for people to hold to that as something that's possible and available again, because it's not something that is maybe uh, circulating as the standard sexual experience in our culture right now. Yeah. And I think we shift that way from going from neurotic to now erotic. Okay. So, and, and, and that's that insecurity to security inside of ourselves. And I think that's in the, that's the relationship that we're in right now. Like a lot of us can be very neurotic and insecure and that does not create pleasure and connection. And the moment we step into feeling safe and connected to ourselves and the person we're with, the whole entire universe opens up to us, the university where we can learn more about this happiness and pleasure, you know, as we get more into the here and now into the presence, when we become fully available and present to the present moment. And I think that that's Tantra in its essence Mm -hmm. is just bringing all of our consciousness awareness to the moment. And sometimes in sex, we're not in the moment because of all of that neuroticism, but we're working it out together slowly, slowly, right? Chipping away at what doesn't work. Well, I hope that you do start the the university one day soon. Again. (laughs) We're we're here doing it together, girl. Yeah, we are. We are. Well, thank you so much, Michaela. This has been truly an extraordinary conversation and I've learned many linguistics to carry with me in my own reframing of reality. And, uh, I just highly encourage people to seek you out and I think you have so much to offer in this realm. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you for offering this to everyone. This is such a big offering and gift to the world to be able to have these sex, 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 I was going to say discussions, sex discussions with people so that we can have that expansion. It's really important to discuss it and decide together as a collective, what does this look like? So thank you for bringing that to the world. You're awesome. Love you. Thank you. Love you too. If this episode turned you on, consider dropping a five in the ratings, subscribing to the show and sending it to a friend. You can help us build our audience this way and we would be so grateful. Special thank you to Liliana Estes for editing this episode. Thank you, Casey Odesser and Sasha Carney for their rigorous research and preparation for these conversations and to Ben Euphrat for his continued guidance on this show. Stay sexy, folks.